Hello, everyone. Welcome to this event, the future of the study of the Middle East, ecology, health and decolonization. My name is Robert Lowe and I am the Deputy yes, Director of the Middle East Centre. And I'd like to give a very warm welcome to our colleagues, Zena Khalil Haj, Omar Daweishi, and Eve Trout Powell, who have kindly joined us. Um, I send apologies from my colleague Michael Mason, who had hoped to be here today to chair the event, but unfortunately Michael is unwell. Um, so we're very sorry about that. He's unable to join us, but we hope he will make a speedy recovery. The event today is also being interpreted live into Arabic. If you would like to listen in Arabic, please go to the interpretation tab at the foot and click on the Spanish option. The reason for Spanish is that Zoom does not yet offer Arabic as a language on its system. So if you would like to listen in Arabic, you must opt for Spanish. <laughs> Please also note that this event will be recorded. It will be available later as a podcast and it will also be live streamed on Facebook. <clears throat> And if you'd like to tweet about the event, please do so using the hashtag LSE Middle East or MEC10. As the Middle East Centre marks its 10th anniversary this term, we in the Centre have been reflecting on the volume of research and the impact generated by the Centre's work, and also on the tremendous shifts experienced in the region over that period. We thought that the panel event to mark the occasion should examine some of the key challenges facing the region over the next few years, and indeed how research should be adapting to address those areas. Those are the themes being discussed tonight, and these were specifically identified from among the centre staff. I must give great thanks to my colleagues in the centre who have worked so hard to put this event together, and all the other activities we've been running to mark our anniversary this fortnight. To, in particular, Nadine Almanasfi, to Nisreen Arafai, Jack McGinn, and Rubal Sleiman Haidar. Also, I need to give a huge thank you to everyone in the centre team, all the staff, all the visiting fellows, past and present, for the huge contribution they've made to the Middle East Centre over the past 10 years, and also for all the fun and the friendship we have had along that journey. In the centre, we're also hugely grateful to our colleagues around LSE, in the other centres, the teaching departments, and in our highly valued service divisions for all the support they have given to us. And we'd like to thank our friends and our partners working elsewhere in the UK, um, specifically in the Middle East and North Africa, and also around the world for the support and enthusiasm they have shown to us over the last decade. And lastly, I'd like to thank you, um, our public audience, for the great support you have given to our work and indeed for joining us at this event today. Thank you. Now, we are delighted um, that our director, the director of LSE, Manish Shafiq, is able to join us now to give some welcome remarks and indeed to launch our exciting new Arabic content project. Manish, thank you. Thank you, Robert. And uh, let me just join you in welcoming everyone to this celebration of the 10th anniversary of the Middle East Centre at the LSE. Uh, this is the culmination of a series of events that we've been holding over the last couple of weeks. And since its opening in 2010, 
the Middle East Centre has grown to become a large and vibrant research community with deep connections across LSE and across the region and internationally. And it provides rigorous research on societies, politics and economics of the Middle East region with a strong connection to institutions in the region. I think one of the distinctive things that we bring is a social science perspective. I think it's fair to say that the Middle East and North Africa academic life has been uh, very well represented in disciplines like medicine and engineering, and of course the humanities. But I think the social sciences uh, have historically been underrepresented, and I think it's something that the LSE brings to the table uh, and speaks really importantly to many of the challenges facing the region today, such as the topics that you're going to be discussing today. I also wanted to uh, commend the launch of the Arabic content project, which we're launching officially today, uh, which will encourage research by scholars working in Arabic for an Arabic speaking audience. The first pages of it are being shown uh, now on your screens and they will be available for uh, use very, very shortly. Uh, and in that spirit, as Robert said, this event is also being broadcast in Arabic. But here is a little bit of a flavor of what's to come in terms of Arabic content on our website. So with that, I just wanted to, to congratulate everyone associated with the Middle East Center, those working there and those connected to the center uh, for this, uh, for this uh, important 10th anniversary. By the time you're 10, you're like a serious part of the establishment uh, and you're sort of here to stay. Uh, and I look forward to seeing what the center produces over the next decade. So with that, let me hand it back to Robert and just say alphamakruk. Anoush, thank you so much. Very kind of you to join us. We're very grateful indeed. Thank you. We'll now move on to the formal presentations. Um, we're very privileged to three very distinguished speakers joining us today. Each of them will speak for around 10 to 12 minutes, so fairly brief, um, just to introduce some ideas they have and stimulate some further conversation in the Q&A. There should be plenty of time for this at the end. Um, if you would like to ask a question of our speakers, please type your question into the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. You do not use the chat function for questions. And it would be helpful, please, if you could note to whom your question is addressed. And please only ask one question. We'll then address the questions to the speakers following their presentations. And we'll try to get through as many as we possibly can in the time available. So our first speaker, welcome, Zena. Zena Khalil Hajj is an environmental activist and former executive director of Greenpeace Mediterranean, the regional office for Greenpeace in the Middle East, North Africa. She volunteered for the organization when it was first setting up offices in the Middle East and then became its spokesperson in the Arab world. Zena has 20 years of experience in creative campaigning, communications, policy development and public engagement. She is an activist by heart and has worked on social issues ranging from global electoral laws and environmental policies to dealing with the aftermath of war. Zena, thank you so much for joining us. Over to you. Thank you very much. I want to really extend my uh, uh, celebration to LSE, uh, to the Middle East Center, and thank them for hosting uh, this event and for creating uh, this website, which I believe is, is an essential asset. Uh, because this is a gap 
that we are truly missing in terms of academia and in terms of further researching this region per se and doing more data and more work for this region if you want to basically change things around. So thank you all for having me tonight, tonight and thank you all for joining us in this conversation. Um, I want to cover climate change, the impact of climate change on this region, because for me, uh, this topic that is actually um, affecting all our life um, is not being prioritized and dealt with the priority that it requires in this region. Definitely not from the decision maker and definitely not in terms of doing intense research of what has actually happened in the region. Um, so I will cover the impact on people, uh, a part of the pollution that we are facing in our daily life, and most important, the economy impact of what we are facing and what we could face in this region. Um, last week, the world um, was celebrating, or actually, an event, um, uh, which was the signing of the Paris Agreement. This was a humongous step. And sadly, um, five years after the signing of that agreement, we are far away still from meeting the challenges that we have. This year will be dubbed as the hottest year in our life. And we, are, we have faced, in the Middle East per se, some of the toughest uh, fire that we have witnessed this year um, that covered Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and caused for the first time death and evacuation of people. So for us, this alarming um, sign that require us to basically really look into what we need to face, because the Middle East as a region is gonna be one of the most affected from climate impact. Uh, not just from an environmental point of view, but the people living in it. So if we look at um, the Middle East, but actually Arab speaking country, uh, I'll leave uh, Eve to basically talk us about that if, how we are dividing this region. Um, if we speak about uh, Arab speaking countries, that basically we have about 400 million people around, 100 million will be affected with the impact of climate change and what is happening through basically impact on their livelihood, through impact on their um, living. Um, to give you an example, 40% of uh, the people living uh, in Arab speaking countries still rely on agriculture as a form of income. Um, those 40% will be affected if the heat is going to continue, if the fire is going to continue, and if most important, the drought that has been affecting this region for many years will be affecting basically their livelihood. So imagine 40% of the population having impact on the way that they are generating their income, but as well on the way that we're generating the food that is feeding these people. So we're starting to impact not just the economy and their livelihood, we are starting to impact the food security of the region and the food sovereignty, because countries like Syria, like Iraq, uh, like Morocco, like Egypt, shifting the type of crop that they are building because there is no more water to grow this crop is basically a threat. And we're talking about crop like wheat, like corn, so the essential crop that are essential for the livelihood of the people. Impacting the economy and the livelihood of the people 
means as well that there will be further unemployment. And this is a huge threat for the region. The region already suffered 25% um, of unemployment in its youth, the young people, which one of the highest in the world. And that is actually adding to the stress that we're feeling, the conflict that are being generated in our livelihood. You're creating basically a, ge a generation that is frustrated, that is angry, that is not finding a way forward, leading it to migration, leading it to basically being angry and looking for other means to create their life. And I think this is really a huge threat that we need to address and we need to look into it. It's not just the people that are affected, the environment itself and our key natural resources. Uh, this year, Greenpeace released a report on um, the impact, for example, of one of the most beautiful uh, trees that we have in the region, which is the cedar tree. A cedar tree is a symbol of the Lebanese flag, is a symbol of beauty in the region. Um, these trees are going to be affected and we will lose them if we basically do not deal with the impact of climate change in the region. And we are starting to see that impact affecting um, the amount of, of trees growing in, in, in the region. We're not talking about just trees, we're talking about the biodiversity that exists in the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. Uh, we're talking about the sea level rise. We're talking about the um, oasis that exists across the region that is being affected and we are losing it. We're losing it not just from the livelihood and the biodiversity of that, but as well from the culture and the uniqueness um, of the people that live in these oases. Um, so, you know, we really have a threat. We really have um, a threat that is affecting how we are designing our way of life um, and how we can look for solution. There is no question um, that climate change is caused by our addiction to fossil fuel. There is no doubt about that. And there is no doubt as well that the Middle East region, entire economy has benefited for many years from its reliance on oil. But by 2020, we really need to start shifting and building a different economy. An economy, for example, that can start investing and renewable. And to give you another key important data that we have witnessed, um, investment in renewable will not only generate jobs. Um, there's been a study that was done in 2015 looking at the region, especially the Gulf region. Investment in renewable by 2030 can generate 35 million in the Gulf region, investment and money. It, this will create 200,000 jobs, and that will help us reduce 8% of our CO2 emission and 16% of the use of water in the region. So we're looking as a holistic solution for a problem that will affect our life. Um, and before I finish, I want to say that this impact is not just biodiversity, uh, people's economy and way of life. It's actually our health. Um, recent study that we released as Greenpeace um, this year, which was a global study about the impact of air pollution coming from the reliance on fossil fuel, has basically showed us that the death toll 
is about 65,000 people from the Middle East region alone. It's about four deaths for 10,000 people in countries like Lebanon, like Egypt. These are big numbers uh, for that, right? That we are impacting our life. It's not just coming with death of people. It's coming with a price, with a tag. The study that we've done on global impact of air pollution on our budget globally, 3% of our global GDP is going on this cost, the cost of air pollution on our daily life. In the Mediterranean and in the Middle East area, um, countries like Egypt, like Saudi Arabia, like uh, United Arab lead the way, a country like Egypt is basically paying about 6.9 billion per year to cover this cost of health impact on our life. So for me, you know, there is no question that we need to add. We need to act to protect our health. We need to act to change our economy, make it more progressive, create new jobs, and find way forward. And we can do that. We can do that because what we learned from all the trauma of this year with COVID, that actually when it gets to time to make decision, tough decision, we can do them. We can change the economy, we can shut down the economy, we can do a lot of things when we have to. So let's try to do these changes before we have to and act on this data that is telling us the clock is ticking and we really need to act for this region and for the future. Thank you. Zena, thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you for managing to finish on a slightly more optimistic note from this very stark presentation, but you, um, you outlined the key points extremely effectively. I'm grateful for your succinctness as well, which will lead up very nicely to our discussion. And indeed, thank you also for linking neatly to health, which is the topic of our, our next presentation. So I will move straight on to introduce Omar Duweshi, who is Associate Professor of Medical Anthropology at Rutgers University. He trained in medicine and anthropology, and Omar works at the intersections of global health, the history of medicine, and political anthropology. He founded the Conflict Medicine Program at the American University of Beirut, which is dedicated to the interdisciplinary study of the physical, psychological, and social manifestations of war wounds. Omar is the author of Ungovernable Life, Mandatory Medicine and Statecraft in Iraq, which chronicles the rise and fall of state medicine in Iraq. And his current research project links the biophysical wounds of war to a broader understanding of wounding in conflicts. Omar, thank you very much. Thank you for, so much for having me, uh, Rob, and thanks uh, to the Centre for inviting me and organising this uh, wonderful uh, event with, uh, with my esteemed colleagues. Uh, congratulations on the 10th anniversary of the Centre, and I hope that uh, this, this work and this interest in health environment and, uh, and, and, and critique of, of, uh, of modes of knowing and methodology uh, continues uh, to, go, uh, to go further in the, in the coming years. So uh, I come to this question 
from my own uh, trajectory. I'm, I'm not going to necessarily highlight what are kind of health issues in the region that needs to be addressed. I think there are many uh, really excellent reports to do that. But I come to this question of the future of Middle East studies and, and, the, and, and looking at healthcare in general and health as a central um, subject of, uh, of that study. So, uh, you know, as, as, as you presented, uh, I've, I've worked both, uh, I've worked as a physician, uh, as a public health practitioner, and as an anthropologist. Uh, I've written a lot about the history of medicine and the human and environmental cost uh, of war and conflict and the unraveling of state infrastructure in the Middle East. So I wore uh, uh, several hats, uh, and and but I also kind of had been always at the margins of all these different fields. I've never really belonged completely to public health, never belonged completely in Middle East studies, uh, and had uh, also kind of kind of problem or kind of marginal position, peripheral position, also in in anthropology. So, uh, so my, what I'd like to suggest that this kind of uh, marginal vantage point is somewhat it could allow us sometimes to see and appreciate both the reach uh, and the limits of many of these fields uh, in defining uh, how we approach them and how we look at them in general. So first I would like to uh, preface uh, uh, this intervention by saying that the study of health and healthcare in the Middle East is not something new and it has been done uh, for a long time, although it's not really as uh, prolific as other uh, regions in the world. Uh, uh, in, in, in fact, when you look at kind of a history of global health and how uh, people narrate that history from historians and anthropologists, the Middle East really occupies a very shy place. Very little is mentioned on the place of the Middle East uh, in that history. However, over, uh, you know, through my own career and my encounters uh, going through these different disciplines, I've, I've worked and encountered incredible uh, scholars and experiments that actually try to bring in uh, uh, public health and social science uh, together in thinking about the kind of the everyday predicaments and everyday life issues around health and trying to understand uh, health and well-being as social, economic, and political phenomenon. So uh, uh, I, I mentioned here uh, one group that really had a lot of impact on, on, on my uh, career and my own uh, kind of understanding of interdisciplinarities, the Reproductive Health Working Group uh, that started, I think, in the late 90s uh, or mid 90s. I'm not really sure when it started, but, but continues until now. It was led by incredible uh, scholars, uh, amongst whom uh, uh, Professor Hudazreq, Rite Jakaman, and Belgian Tekce, who uh, have actually founded this uh, this uh, incredible interdisciplinary group and was was responsible for training uh, uh, health professionals and social scientists in in this kind of cross fertilization research uh, on reproductive health, gender, uh, and different uh, uh, health issues uh, over over these decades. However, these experiments in bringing in uh, social science and public health had kind of uh, suffered through major rifts over uh, the decades also. At one side, we, had, we have uh, public health moving more and more towards uh, technocratic production of knowledge, uh, producing reports 
and research for UN organizations and international organizations. And in doing so, really uh, 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 defining a, a very kind of a narrow approach that, that, that is mainly uh, um, mobilized by the funding that is available from these organizations and the kind of uh, uh, technocratic kind of reporting on these uh, issues. So, so the public health in general had also moved uh, uh, towards more of the kind of policy briefs and uh, pr producing systematic reviews, um, a, a less, less and less encounters of uh, doing fieldwork research and investigating kind of health problems uh, on, the, on the ground. So uh, at the same time in the social science, uh, sciences with, with the, what we call the linguistic or the discursive turn, uh, there has been more and more uh, critique of medical epistemologies, medical interventions, what we call medicalization in general of, of, of social life, uh, uh, focusing mainly on the critique of uh, biological reductionism and uh, a lot of uh, uh, the ways medicine and public health narrate issues of health and disease in society. So uh, we uh, so we are left with 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 more silos develop uh, silos across these different fields. People in public health are more concerned with these uh, uh, technocratic uh, knowledge production, and and in the social sciences we get critiques uh, that are based on you know more deconstruction and 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 uh, uh, and social constructionism in general, which are very critical and important contributions. Uh, however, what we have been missing really uh, is a, a collaboration uh, that brings in uh, research from uh, researchers uh, from different aspects of the sciences and social sciences and the humanities to think about really uh, uh, problems on the ground. So I say this uh, partly because uh, I wanted to give a little bit of an example from the, some of the work that we tried to do, at least in, in maybe bridging these uh, gaps uh, on the ground during the past uh, decade of research and work uh, in, uh, in Beirut. So, uh, and I'm, I'm uh, here maybe shamelessly uh, promoting a special issue that just came out today uh, uh, on health and uh, the body politic, uh, where we try to really capture uh, this decade of the unravel, what we call the unraveling of healthcare. And that, that is really very much linked to the breakdown of the body politic, the rise of conflicts across the region, and of course, uh, uh, the different processes of neoliberalization that has uh, uh, really undermine the welfare and the public good health and health as a right uh, across the region. Over time, over history, um, the Middle East had had really incredible experiments in, in uh, more socialist experiments, let's say, in, in defining uh, healthcare as a universal right. Uh, but this is also happening during these authoritarian nationalist governments that, that uh, also defined health as a deeply political matter is something that is defined actually by the state. However, over the past decades, we, what we've seen with the uh, transformation of uh, uh, different states in the region due to the global war on terror, due, uh, due to uh, regional conflicts, that health 
uh, has become a health environment and all these kind of different drivers of health have become increasingly uh, underinvested in by uh, governments. And so what we see really uh, very interesting, uh, at least in that special issue, what we mentioned is that you see a rise in investment in uh, uh, militarization and buying of arms. Uh, and, and opposed to that is a kind of a decrease in investment in health in general. So, so one of the things that we tried to do in Beirut, uh, me and my colleague, Ghassan Abusitta, who actually is interviewed uh, thoroughly in, the, in this uh, special issue, we developed this uh, interesting platform, what we call conflict medicine. And the idea of this uh, uh, project or this program was to uh, bring in uh, research and thinking from the, from the clinic to public health, to, uh, to ethnographic and historical research to bear on understanding of these political and uh, tra political transformations, but also the transformations in the environment, transformation in everyday life. And what we tried to look at, uh, at defining our project as a, as a kind of a study of war wounds and wounding in general is to really link the idea of the physical, the social uh, bodies, and the body politic. So uh, uh, one of the fascinating things that emerged from this work by, uh, and by paying more attention to the, the sociology and the clinical uh, understanding of wounds uh, we began to uh, follow a lot of the how patients are moving across the region, uh, defining the limits of some of the public health work uh, that was mainly uh, brought in uh, from uh, scholars and researchers in the West, uh, looking at uh, uh, the health problems in the region as being defined by health systems and refugees. So what we really tried to do is to break these dichotomies in, in, in showing how following patients uh, and their displacements and their healthcare seeking uh, practices show us a much more complex picture of, uh, of what we call therapeutic geographies and therapeutic landscapes uh, where people were trying to uh, lead, uh, move from places like Iraq to go to Lebanon or to go to India or to go to Turkey to seek healthcare. At the same time, uh, uh, studying these uh, uh, questions around wounds and wounding began to open up conversations around uh, uh, antimicrobial resistance, a problem that will be uh, haunting uh, global health for the next few decades. Uh, right now, it's definitely overshadowed by the, by the corona, uh, by the COVID-19 pandemic, but this is a problem that actually specifically in the Middle East is, is gonna be a big uh, issue over uh, the coming decades. Um, what we have, what we try to show uh, is that uh, the rise of these uh, superbugs uh, in conflict settings were very much tied to uh, the history of uh, war and sanctions in Iraq, uh, the the way healthcare systems are put under pressure due to economic and uh, 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 kind of economic uh, sanctions and uh, preventing medicine to come in or uh, producing a very erratic uh, line of medical supplies. Uh, what we saw uh, a more, what we call an, an anarchic use of, of antibiotics during the 1990s in Iraq that uh, really uh, uh, 
hypothesized as one of the reasons why we see so many high rates of these uh, problems in um, in the Middle East and specifically in conflict zone. The other kind of hypotheses that we were working on uh, had to do with the uh, the role of environmental contamination from uh, 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 from weaponry and uh, armaments and uh, uh, toxic remnants of war, uh, uh, places like uh, like Iraq and other countries that had gone through conflict had not gone through any form of cleanup of uh, of these uh, toxic weapons, and the and the presence of these uh, environmental pollutants. Uh, had been seen as uh, or had been kind of shown to give rise to some of the superbugs right now that are plaguing uh, many Middle Eastern hospitals. Uh, in fact, the recent COVID-19 had actually uh, highlighted uh, the, this problem in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in its magnitude, mainly that many of the cases that we've seen, um, I, mean, I mean, in Iraq, the, one, of the pieces, one of the excellent pieces written in the MARIP issue is by Max Skelton, who is a fellow with, uh, with, with the LSC Center, shows how uh, actually for many Iraqis, the ambivalence to, to seek treatment in hospitals had to do with an understanding uh, of 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 the toxicity of these hospitals, and actually, we have uh, seen how many patients who go to hospitals end up uh, maybe uh, uh, becoming COVID-free, but actually catching uh, a superbug and dying there. So, uh, so what we are seeing is this kind of uh, healthcare collapse uh, that is very much linked to to uh, the, uh, the the body politics unraveling in the region. So I, I think uh, these are examples from uh, these are examples of how uh, social science research, historical analysis, and public health work and clinical medicine could actually come together to think about these problems uh, as a problem-based approach. So uh, I think we need more of these uh, uh, interventions. We need more of, uh, of interdisciplinary thinking and maybe even anti-disciplinary thinking, if, we, if, we, if I may say that, uh, in the sense that we are mobilized uh, to think about problems and to think across the board uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to kind of really uh, resolve and mitigate some of these issues and find find how, how uh, these, uh, these environmental and health issues are all entangled with the kind of broader social and political processes. So I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. Uh, and uh, I think uh, there will be a lot of uh, things that I will uh, maybe unpack uh, during the discussion. Thank you very much. Omar, thank you so much. That was fascinating. Wonderful presentation. Incredibly rich, nuanced in the time you had and introduced a lot of wonderful <clears throat> ideas and concepts to us. And thank you also for your plea for the interdisciplinary aspect of that work, which certainly rings true to us in a multidisciplinary centre at LSE. Um, lots to pick up there as we move on into the Q&A. Um, I, I would encourage you out there in, in the audience, a few of you have already asked questions, please do put your questions in the box now. Um, it will be helpful to get them lined up as we move um, beyond the presentations. I can see a couple for Zena emerging already. And yes, we, we must plug um, again um, Omar's uh, publication. The link is in the chat if you haven't seen it to the Middle East Reports Winter Issue of Health and the Body Politic, I guess edited by our very own speaker tonight. So you can find the link in the chat box. Thank you, Omar, indeed. 
Um, and finally, we, but not lastly by any means, we move to our third speaker, um, Eve, Eve Trout-Powell, who is Christopher H. Brown, Distinguished Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches the history of the modern Middle East and the history of slavery in the Nile Valley and the Ottoman Empire. Her books include A Different Shade of Colonialism, Egypt, Great Britain and the Mastery of the Sudan, and Tell This in My Memory, Stories of Enslavement in Egypt, Sudan and the Late Ottoman Empire. Eve is now working on a book about the visual culture of slavery in the Middle East, which will explore the painting and photography about African and Circassian slavery in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Sounds like another fascinating project. Eve, thank you so much for joining us. I hand over to you. Well, thank you so much, Bob. And um, I'm, I'm really um, so grateful to be, have been invited onto this panel. Thank you, uh, London School of Economics, and congratulations on a decade of, of, of the Middle East Center. And may there be many, many more decades to come, inshallah. And um, um, I'm also very grateful for my two, uh, my two co-panelists um, for their um, fascinating um, um, presentations. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to um, sort of piggyback onto them because both, um, um, both uh, public health, um, um, the wounds of war and climate, uh, climate change and activism are also very much implicated in the study of race and in the Middle East. Um, and I will begin where I began <clears throat> my first project, which was really on migration and refugees. And I've always been interested sort of on the legacy of history that refugees from Africa, particularly from Sudan, um, um, but also from Ethiopia, carry with them um, as they have moved from civil wars, for instance, in Sudan, um, um, from wars in Ethiopia, or from from disaster climate disastrous climate change, or from drought and famine, or unemployment, or or disease, as they moved into other parts of of the Middle East and North Africa, um, and so migration, as is as you both said, um, it's a historical issue, it's a medical issue, it's an environmental issue, and migration is very much a racial issue. Um, and, and I am feeling much more comfortable um, now that I am, um, um, uh, well, how can I say, uh, sort of a grandma in the field, um, talking about race, because when I first began the work on my dissertation, lo these many years, um, I faced a great deal of resistance to any kind of introduction of a discussion of race, um, and maybe less so about slavery, but by racializing my discussion of slavery, I faced a lot of resistance from people who, knowing that I'm African-American, uh, felt that I was in Imposing a USA-dominated, America-centric um, view of race and racism. Um, and I had to work <clears throat> very hard in the first half of my career um, to, and I will say maybe, um, maybe I in some ways bore a shame about that. And so I did not 
I, I didn't go as far into clinical, uh, critical Africana theory, which is itself developing over the last 10, 20 years, um, trying to keep my discussion of race, trying very hard to translate um, um, ideas of race, the vocabulary of race um, in the Arabic speaking world um, to avoid comparisons with the United States, with the Caribbean, um, not with Africa. I did try to look very hard at Africa, but I'm, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm beyond that now. I've changed that now very much. And, um, and so I, I defy that resistance. And, um, but not only have I defied it, um, others have as well. And I think that's even more important. So one of the things that people in the Middle East, um, this spring, besides the uh, horrible uh, migration of coronavirus all around the world, um, in the Middle East, uh, I would say from the late fall to this past spring, 2020, for some reason, there was an overabundance of blackface performance videos throughout the region. Um, um, there was, uh, there were blackface videos, uh, uh, singing videos in Lebanon of a performance artist who blacked herself up discreetly as Beyonce. Um, um, there were others um, um, who imitated the Afros of particular uh, Black, uh, Latino, Latina um, performers in, in, in Florida. Um, and when challenged, um, um, they said, no, 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 this is about love. We love Black people. We love Sudanese. They're a part of the community. So um, I uh, um, started looking at some of these videos, started looking at a lot of, of film representations of, um, of, of, of just Black people, spent, spent some time in Cairo um, in last year in October, and I recovered from my jet lag. I spent about two days watching the, the comedy channel Emile, um, and almost every other film had some scene of somebody blacking up to represent a sub-Saharan African. Um, on Egypt has um, um, a Saturday Night Live um, um, Arabic version in which, in which uh, Abla Antar were also, Antar becomes um, very blacked up. Um, and when I say that, I mean actually, you know, darkening the face uh, um, to, but not just the face, it's also about language. Um, Shaima Asaif is a comedian in Cairo. Uh, I, I'm not sure if she's in Cairo, but she's in, in Egypt. Um, and I heard her um, give a very interesting um, interview. I don't remember the name of the interviewer, but this was sometime last year in 2019, in which, and the interviewer kept saying, well, let's talk about Zenj and the portrayal of the Zenuj, you know, and this word for, you know, that loosely translates in English into Negro. Um, and Shaima Safe herself said that's a racist word, and she used the term unsuri, and she, that's a racist term, and you can't use that. This very same comedian is on a series or has been on a series in which she pretends she portrays a Sudanese woman of unknown background, just Sudanese, and we know she's Sudanese through her language and her dark 
and, and I think uh, Shema Assay found about the blackest shoe polish you can find um, to do this. And, 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 and her, her breasts were enhanced, all kinds of, and then she gets on this bus, sometimes with her little, her little son, sometimes with another Sudanese woman, and they speak like it's, it's in, in Sudan, the term would be uh, Juba Arabi almost, which is sometimes the Northern Sudanese pejorative for what uh, Southerners speak and the way Southerners speak Arabic. But this was a very Egyptian, it, it was a real riff on Amiya and then having this woman speak, oh, the, as she was overset, all of these, of these stereotypes of the oversexed black woman become uh, embodied in Shaima Asaf's work. So I'm fascinated by how this has become a discussion in the Middle East and, um, and how we now, I think it is a good time to start looking at, particularly in these, what this kind of blackface performance means about racism and about the incorporation of racial identities into the identities of many people in the Arabic speaking world. Um, not only the Arabic speaking world though, I would also say the Farsi speaking world and the Turkish speaking world and the Hebrew speaking world um, because this is an issue throughout, throughout the Middle East and North Africa. So I have been looking for a long time at the voices of refugees and how they relate to their ancestors and how they perhaps know the history so that so many women working perhaps in houses in Beirut or in houses in Riyadh or, or in houses in, in apartments in Cairo, why they get called certain names as they walk through certain streets, those names like Abid, tend to refer to the domestic servitude of many African women in the past. And when I say the past, I really mean from the middle of the, well, the early third of the 19th century to the present, and why their domestic work is labeled with the term of slavery. And what do they know about their own slave past? And what do those calling them these names know about the history of slavery in the Middle East? For many years, people said, well, we didn't have that. It was in the USA. We didn't have that. That wasn't here. It was different. It was milder. It was, it was part of the family. Well, when you really look at the history of slavery in the United States, we had some of those same arguments as well. And um, I'm also now looking at the history of slavery in Britain and France, because of course the role of Britain and France in the Middle East had a great deal to do with creations of slave caricatures and racial caricatures, as did the Ottoman Empire. So, but let me um, wind up by saying that um, it's one thing for me to reach out to refugees and to look at the history of slavery. Um, I'm very much a humanities person. I'm a cultural historian. I'm not a social scientist. But what is so impressive and what I see my future work and the future work of places like the Middle East Studies Association of North America, the London School of Economics, you know, um, other centers of Middle East studies is also looking at the voices of young scholars coming from the region who themselves identify as Black. And um, um, I have now begun meeting and working with a group of young scholars who are looking at um, the history of slavery in the Ottoman Empire who themselves identify as Afro-Turks. 
there is a growing group of people who are, are beginning to reach out to others that I know in the Philadelphia region of Afro-Iraqis who are looking at um, their identity as Black Iraqis. Um, I, I mentioned Afro-Turks. There's a, a growing scholarly movement to explore Blackness in Iran and the history and legacies of slavery in Iran. It's not just scholars, though. It's activists. It's artists. It's, it's, it's the connection of Black Lives Matter to Palestinian Lives Matter. It's the connection um, um, that is being made in the Middle East as well, which, which is, is, I think, a very important new future for the next 10 years of uh, Middle East studies. And I think I'll stop there. Eve, thank you so much, for, particularly for drawing all those complex strands together there at the end. <laughs> give us some thoughts and relevance for the future of Middle East studies, which is indeed precisely um, a modest ambition we had for tonight's event was to <laughs> begin to tackle such, such questions. Um, but again, thank you. That was, that was an extraordinary presentation. Fascinating. So, so rich, complex. I would love to hear more about those scholars from the region who, who are identifying as black and, and the work they're undertaking um, and connect better to them. Um, and again, lots of themes and, and ideas we can pick up on as we move to the, the Q&A now in the open discussion with, with our friends out there in the invisible audience. But a huge thanks to all three speakers um, for such super presentations. I don't think we could have hoped for anything better and indeed for being so um, clever in your, in your choice of, um, of ideas and language um, to, to keep these presentations reasonably sharp, uh, which means we are now in a very healthy state that we have uh, 35, 40 minutes or so to take questions, comments from our audience and, and feedback into the three of you for further reflections. Um, the first questions which came in were for Zainab. So I'll take a couple of those, Zainab, perhaps, and we can, and we can kick off with you. Um, first question from Amar uh, came in is about changing the economy, um, how you might affect real change, I assume with, with reference to climate or indeed economics in the climate in the face of authoritarian rulers and i might link the second question to that um which is from janet thank you for your question um which is could you name one or two signs of progress in the region such as indications of clean energy um, or a more healthy future so looking for some some positive notes there if you'd like zainab thank you zainab thank you yes uh, thank you for the questions and thank you for the interest. And, and before I answer, really, thank you, Omar and Eve. It was very interesting for me to hear you. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, Erika moment in my head uh, listening to both of you. Um, for Amr, uh, uh, just to start, changing the economy is not a task that's going to be easy. It's not something that, you know, it, it, it's not only a problem for our region. It's a problem the entire world need to basically shift its addiction to fossil fuel, right? It's an entire economy built on that model and you need to change that model entirely. Uh, of course, in our region, it's more complex if you don't have basically uh, a democratic system that allow you to change policy, that allow you to change um, um, how decision making are made, but it's not impossible because the reality is, is that our own countries are facing what I spoke about in terms of health impact, cost of this health impact, 
um, they are facing already drought and floods and fire. So it's, it's in your face, basically, and you will have to basically deal with it. But as well, you will have to deal with it from an economic point of view. The reliance on fossil fuel is not going to continue because, for example, cost of building now solar power plant or wind power plant is cheaper than building coal power plant and oil power plant. Um, so for me, it's, it's, this is how the economy is going to shift. This is how things are going to change step by step. The reliance on, for example, for our transport, um, you know, the entire car industry is shifting globally from being dependent on oil uh, to being dependent now on, you know, solar and, and, and building your um, uh, system in a different way, right? So the economic shift is going to happen inevitably. It is not a matter when, it's just a matter of when, basically. Um, for this region, um, the challenge currently is to change the policies and change basically where we are putting our investment. There are countries that are doing massive, impressive work, right? And it is not just the countries that are um, uh, not dependent on oil. To give example of countries, uh, Morocco has already done the huge investment in renewable energy and shifted its reliance on fossil fuel. Yes, it is not an oil producing country, but for example, the Emirate has shifted its reliance on, um, on its own gas to basically build for the biggest uh, solar system uh, and solar power plant in the world that basically now is distributing energy for the society. Dubai as a city now is aiming to shift the entire household to be reliant on solar energy. So, you know, things going to change, uh, going to take longer probably in our region. Uh, but that's what makes our job as activists a bit more challenging and a bit more basically requiring um, smartness in the strategy and basically seeing how we can make sure that, for example, the rule of law, uh, the research, um, uh, the policies that are being set in parliament or in the global um, in, in decision maker um, houses are basically looking at this investment and investing from them from an economic point of view benefit and second from a health sector uh, benefit because you know one of the, the advantages that we are seeing now with um, the debate on COVID and the debate of our health is that it is basically we're realizing how much the price we are paying for that, how much the price we are paying um, uh, for, for the health sector. Um, yes, it's going to continue to be challenging, but yeah, what's not in life? Um, Janet, thank you for your, um, for your, and your question on, on solution and examples. There are examples from, as I said, the model of Morocco and the model of uh, United Arab Emirates that are changing the reliance on um, um, fossil fuel as a source to produce their electricity to uh, basically building solar power plant, to building system. Um, Egypt is joining this basically a group of people with, with the biggest um, wind system that being set up in, in, in the country to small scale, really small scale um, household 
examples, small-scale farmers' examples. Um, we in, in, in Greenpeace did a very, one of the most beautiful projects that I worked with uh, three, four years ago. Um, it was during the peak of the um, uh, Syrian war. Um, and when we had a huge influx of refugees in Lebanon. And uh, as you all probably know, or you don't know, Lebanon still sadly uh, suffer from an electricity problem. You don't have electricity um, in the country uh, in, a, in a reliable way. Um, so we wanted to get the community on where they are uh, to work with solar energy and rely on solar energy. So it shows a community in the south of Lebanon where there were refugees from Palestinian refugees, Syrian refugee and local groups in Lebanon. And we worked with them on educating the youngsters to basically um, uh, rely on solar energy, create solar energy. And then the teaching that they got worked with the local community and it was a project with a woman community that produced food uh, in that village in the south of Lebanon. Um, so for us this was a, a small project but for me this project basically give you example how much you can decentralize the solution when it comes to our electricity and where we can decentralizing the solution when it comes to electricity we can make a change quicker faster and engaging our society and engaging our people. There are a lot of examples in Egypt about that by a farmers group and by people who has been in the desert building small scale solar energy. We're witnessing it in, in Morocco, we're witnessing in Tunisia. So for me, it is possible. Um, uh, it is harder in certain countries where there are still conflict, um, uh, but I think the will of the people to change, the will of the young people uh, to invest in this new technology, to give them their independence, to give them their uh, reliance on technology that they can understand more, uh, is basically you know, the bet that we are making of making change. So these for me are some of the examples we are witnessing and they're gonna be more and more of them. Dina, thank you very much. Um, there is another question coming in from you, which we might just skip for now, let you have a little break. Um, the question for Eve, I think we might take first and return to the other climate question. Um, Eve, um, our colleague in the Middle East Centre, Taif Al-Khudari, um, one of our researchers, congratulates you on your presentation, and also asks, which I think very interesting question and pertinent, do you think we currently have the language in Arabic to talk about issues of race and or colorism within with the region. How do we begin to see this language develop? I, um, um, I'm sorry, Bob, I didn't hear the whole question. Can you repeat it? Certainly. The question is, do you think that we currently have the language in Arabic to talk about issues of race and or colorism in the region? And how do we begin to see this language develop? That is a that is a great question and a very important question. Um, um, and, and thank you for that question. Um, I think that the language. So this is where this is where the act of translation is so tricky and so sensitive and so important um, because. Um, terminology that has been used in the past. 
um, um, can mean many different things, but how do you translate it, for instance? So just, just the term black, just that term black and what that means, just the term abid and the very different kinds of meanings that that can have, um, um, you know, um, the use of the term black in Turkish is different, well, or not. Um, um, it really depends. So this is where I think I rely, and I think we all have to, on not just who is, um, who is creating the epithet, who is using a particular kind of vocabulary of race, but how is it being heard by those who feel insulted by it? And that's where I think it, it's really important. I think there are words right now in the Middle East, many, many words that are part of the discussion of race. I think that, that um, but I think that what we have not done enough is listen to how those words have been heard and how those words have been defined, not by those in positions of power using them, but also by those hearing them. Um, and, and how they translate it and how those words define their life and become, how words become policies, how words become, you know, um, I think that colorism, you know, it's, a, it's very interesting, um, just that, that the term colorism, um, because different shades of people have different senses, perhaps of beauty, um, but do you see, you know, do you see darker skinned peoples on the televisions in the region? And not just as part of the news. I mean, do you see, you know, uh, people with dark complexion, complexions reporting on the news in the region? How many dark-skinned stars of film, television do you see in, well, we used to watch it in theaters, but, you know, on our screens? Um, um, the Egyptian film star Ahmed Zaki, um, um, who was a lovely, wonderful actor, faced a great deal of resistance because he was darker skinned and he talks about it in, in a memoir um, that, that I'm looking at now. Um, so I, I do think it's happening, and I, but I always think in terms of, for instance, Black Lives Matter and how does that translate, um, it's really important to ask people how they define themselves to begin the, the real discussion of race and where racism, and I mean racism, comes from in, in the Middle East. Thank you, Eve. Um, Omar, I wonder if we might bring you in. Um, a question has come up about COVID, which is perhaps inevitable, and I'm, I'm sure you would have an anticipated it. The specific question is, will the pandemic mark the end game for the uprisings in Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon? And now that may not be an area you wish to cover, but I wonder if, if you might instead prefer to expand on your reflections on what you've witnessed um, over the last 10, nine, 10 months now, um, as someone working in this field from your observations on the region. Um, sure. No, I think that's uh, that's a fair question, uh, and it's really interesting the dynamics uh, to understand the relationship. Actually, the the, the picture behind me is taken uh, from uh, what they know what is known as Matam al Turki, the Turkish restaurant in Baghdad, um, which was a center of the uprising uh, over the past over the past year. Um, I actually was very lucky to be in Baghdad uh, just before COVID hits, actually exactly a year uh, uh, 
ago, I was, I was, uh, I went there after actually not visiting for almost two decades. Mm -hmm. And I spent almost a week in Tahrir Square, um, really doing ethnographic work, uh, interviewing people and just getting uh, the sense of the energy and the, uh, the what, what we call in social science, the collective effervescence of that uprising. And one of the um, fascinating kind of, and following what's happening in Iraq, one of the most fascinating thing, I mean, in Iraq, it's well known that people have these, uh, these uh, what they call the hose, the hosat, and these chants of, in uh, the people go in the street and they do these rhymes and, and singing and dancing. And they use that as a, as a form of political and social critique. And uh, one of these uh, hosat in Iraq was, uh, was related to the COVID. When COVID kind of started in China, uh, there was these chants about that, that in China they have the COVID uh, that, that, you know, that's giving them all these trouble. While in, 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 in this part, in, in Iraq, the main uh, disease is the political parties, the corruption of these political parties. Over the past year, there has been 800 people killed, almost 5,000 injured, um, almost 3,000 of those have kind of permanently disabled uh, in Iraq. So when the COVID hit, it was uh, pretty clear that the, that the death rates of the disease was uh, really is dwarfed by the numbers of, the, uh, uh, of those who are injured and, and, uh, and killed in the uprising. Uh, what's fascinating is that despite that, uh, the threat of COVID, uh, life in Iraq never stopped. The government was not able to completely control uh, uh, social movement, uh, people going out. So there is a kind of a, a letting go of of all of that. That so so and this this has been uh, uh, fascinating. Uh, uh, because you see the determination of a lot of the these young kids, uh, the young generation who are so fed up with the uh, with the kind of the militia run country uh, and the corruption that that really has plagued Iraq. And speaking about the kind of the economic problem, I mean, Iraq there is about four hundred and fifty thousand billion dollars unaccounted for uh, in Iraq. That a lot of it money that has been. Um, uh, stolen, uh, uh, all been kind of uh, sent outside Iraq, and, and a big chunk of that money has gone to Iran to deal with the economic sanctions. So, so uh, over the past decade, there has been this kind of rise of resentment against the these Iran-backed militias in Iraq, and and many of the people are who are demonstrating are kind of going out ready to die uh, for the sake of this idea, this kind of rethinking of this idea of a, of a better Iraq. Um, it's, it's, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have a, uh, a kind of a, a prediction if this is going to be killed, but, this, but these uprising are not coming out of just uh, out of nowhere. There has been a history to them. They've been going on over the past, since the occupation. And I think they will continue to uh, broil uh, with maybe different kind of waves over, over, the, over time. Uh, and one of the most amazing part uh, about these uh, uprisings was the fact that many of the 
um, demonstrators ended up after COVID and the problem with COVID, they, they, they shifted a lot of their uh, work from uh, Tahrir into more promotion campaigns uh, about staying home, wearing masks. And despite that, there were still few people uh, in each tent that remained in Tahrir to stay there. Of course, this is all has been changing with the escalating uh, escalation of violence. But, you know, over the past week, there are now uh, new triggers of uprisings in Kurdistan and, new, uh, and, and, and there has been across the south of Iraq, their continuation of these uprisings. So, so I don't believe that COVID uh, is, uh, is something is going to really eliminate this. If, 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 if one uh, looks at the history of epidemics, something that I've, you know, I've studied and I teach a lot about, uh, we can understand these, uh, these uh, pandemics or epidemics as events. They are they're events that, that uh, uh, both reveal the fault lines of society and politics, but they also could represent a portal of transformation. And I think we're, the, most of us are hoping that uh, in, in time, uh, the, uh, the pressure of the pandemic, uh, uh, it, as, as it subsides, uh, these uprisings continue to, to redefine a new kind of political pathway for, uh, for many people in Iraq. And at least I know as someone who's been in ex living in exile for more than two decades, um, uh, these are things that have connected many of us back to our, back to our homeland, uh, back to our country, um, because because we've kind of also suffered from the failure of all these uh, generations of uh, of politicians uh, that run the country, and then we're we're definitely having some hope in the newer generation. Well, thank you so much. Um, which actually links quite neatly to the question from our friend and colleague Greg Shapland, which I overlooked earlier, um, looking from social movements, from protests, from the activism of young people. Greg asked specifically about, uh, for Zena, if you can discern the emergence of environmental movements among young people in Arab countries, and indeed, or Iran. And if so, how are such movements trying to bring about change and what is their particular focus? Yes, I have to say, um, our reliance is on, on them. Um, I have been um, working on the region for, for 20 years now, and, and I've been witnessing a, a, a rise in the last five years, uh, more than any time before, um, uh, across the region, right? Because you could basically say that there is a bigger movement that existed in, in countries like Lebanon uh, and Egypt, but the last um, uh, five years we have witnessed really among the youth and, and when I say the youth really I'm meaning 17, um, uh, 15, um, maximum 20, 25, uh, taking uh, the challenges uh, and, and the debate on the environmental issues uh, high on, on, on the agenda. Uh, last year uh, there was of course the, the, the big uh, movement of the youth uh, and a few days of mega protests that happened around the world that did of course, inspired um, a lot of young people around the world and did have an impact in the Arab region. Um, um, we've seen protests in Morocco, we've seen protests in um, Tunisia, we've seen a lot of protests in Lebanon, we've seen protests in Iraq, which was impressive um, uh, to see. 
focus on environment, focus on climate change, focused on uh, the impact, for example, on drought on 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 um, uh, on the on the river in in, in Baghdad, um, uh, focused on the impact of uh, uh, the reliance on on uh, oil and extraction of oil. Um, uh, we we've even been in touch with with young people. Um, learning about environment and climate change from the Gulf. Um, young activist, I still remember the conversation we had with her from Saudi Arabia, 16 years old, wanting to learn and understand uh, what is going on and uh, learning what they need to change. Um, one campaign I, 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 I recently come across uh, uh, on a platform called SALT uh, um, uh, that is promoting environmental activism in, in, in the Arab world um, is a campaign to change the policies and the educational system in Tunisia to enforce climate change education. For me, this, this model of this campaign is, is just beautiful because you're basically focused on a future generation and you want to equip them with learning and understanding of the challenges that they're facing in the future and they will face in the future and how that can be changed. And they want the parliament in Tunisia to change the policies so that they actually can get better education and better learning about that. Um, so the focus we are seeing is actually understanding the climate debate, understanding how it can be solved in terms of changing an investment in renewable, um, and as well being more open uh, to environmental problem because, I mean, people are living it, right? They are seeing their ocean polluted. They're seeing the beautiful seas, their beautiful rivers destroyed. They're suffocating with air pollution, you know, like for me, these are inevitable uh, that that gonna become a topic that they will care about because, you know, it's, it's in their face every day. Um, uh, so that, that for me is, is a big hope. Um, and we're seeing them really, really active in terms of getting to know what they need to know and then acting on it uh, from a small scale on their own community to basically changing policies. Um, um, and that for me is, is where we can make changes. Mm -hmm. Thank you. May I just quickly pose a follow-up question from another MEC colleague, Tazmini, which relates specifically to Iran, which is, do you get the impression that campaigning in Iran has been deterred because of government detention? Um, I'm not the expert on Iran, so I have to put that disclaimer up. Uh, at the beginning, uh, but I do know that there is a lot of environmental movement um, working. Um, the focus that I've seen is more on biodiversity and protection of biodiversity. Um, uh, uh, Iran has a huge, beautiful biodiversity from mountains and forests and wildlife that still need to be protected. Um, uh, so that's what I have witnessed. Um, I haven't seen active campaigning on climate change, but that could be my basically shortfall rather than um, what I've seen um, uh, missing. Uh, but it, it's it's on the map. It's it's been. I mean, I remember when we were working on a project related to nuclear in in the region. Uh, there were a lot of people uh, connecting with us on basically impact of nuclear um, on the livelihood and the impact of as well war. 
Um, therefore, uh, I'm very interested to know more from Omar on, on, on the experience of Iraq, because both Iraq and Iran had a huge legacy from the wars that they've given, because the, the type of weapon that was used, um, the impact um, that was left on those communities is really massive. So I, I, there is some interest on that field as well. Thank you. As it happens, my colleague Taif has sneaked in a second question, but it is this very question, so we will link them and move to Omar. Taif asks about the toxic legacy of war and contamination, the health problems exacerbated by corruption in the Iraqi health sector. How do we go about redressing these violations holistically? Do you know of any measures being taken? Sorry, I was muted. Um, there has been uh, really a lot of uh, uh, environmental work uh, of activists and people who are uh, going to to uh, investigate also the the use of depleted uranium. Actually, a lot of the environmental uh, research began with trying to figure out if the use of depleted uranium from the 1990s uh, onwards had had a um, impact on the local population. Uh, there has been uh, some documentation with what happened in the U.S. soldiers and people who actually were involved in this program kind of abandoned ship and, and came out and talked a lot about the, the unforeseen uh, impact. However, a lot of the research has been uh, kind of shot down or at least kind of diminuted by the Department of Defense in the United States and uh, other other governments. Uh, I think the, the issue here is that a lot of these uh, um, activities are often muted, uh, mainly because they're incriminating uh, for what has happened over these decades. Uh, so one has been the, the use of depleted uranium. The other is the, uh, is the kind of just use of... Uh, which has been used in the 90s and used in the 2003 occupation. It was used also in, during the Fallujah assaults in 2000, uh, 2004. Uh, so, uh, so we 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 have we have the kind of a history, and there has been uh, signals that there has been a problems. And Fallujah, there has been reports of congenital anomalies, uh, higher higher levels of congenital anomalies uh, in 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 these hospitals. Uh, the, in, in Basra, which is, you know, had suffered not only from the American invasion, but from the legacy of the Iran-Iraq war. Uh, and uh, it's a, nothing has been really cleaned up. There's very little has happened. And actually in 2015, I went and visited uh, in Basra, uh, visited a, uh, a site of the FAO uh, battle, which was this uh, incredible, probably one of the bloodiest battles uh, that we we know uh, of and, and during like about 100,000 people died uh, during that one incident, uh, one battle. And there were kind of efforts of cleanup, but they were not cleanup of the toxicities, but they were kind of look, still looking for dead bodies uh, of uh, Iraqi and Iranian soldiers who'd been, who'd been kind of left there. Uh, and what was really incredible uh, about these efforts is that uh, I think about three or four uh, members of the research team got killed because they stumbled on uh, on uh, landmines in these areas. So there's kind of attempts to clean some of these landmines, but then the and then finding these uh, dead, dead bodies. Um, 
So the, the problem is, uh, has been that there has not been a clear uh, connection with uh, these health effects and the, and the use of depleted uranium, for example, in Iraq. But I think people's focus on depleted uranium is definitely legitimate and is important, but there needs to be a much more comprehensive understanding of what does war, how can war drive pollution? How can war drive toxicities? What are the legacies of the use of these different weapons? Uh, uh, an experimentation of new weapons. I mean, Iraq has been, you know, I've always said that Iraq has been a biological experiment for the United States, uh, where they've experimented a lot of weapons and the legacies of these uh, weapons are kind of marked uh, in the bodies of a lot of Iraqis and in, and in the kind of genetic makeup of the environment. Uh, some of these uh, uh, examples I've written a little bit about with, with, this, with the rise of these superbugs who who uh, are are kind of you know driven by the the transformation in the milieu and the environmental uh, 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 kind of biosphere of these of 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 the uh, of uh, of the environment, you get these kind of evolution and and uh, into these superbugs. So we we our problem is needing comprehensive and major research projects in these areas. However, as I kind of, just to kind of repeat what I said earlier on, is that the problem is the limitations that you get from the insecurities in, in these areas and also the political uh, uh, pressure to not do that kind of work. Um, however, I think, I think this is a kind of a theme that will need to be put at center stage uh, in the future and I think I think it really brings in uh, uh, interdisciplinary kind of uh, interdisciplinary work from people like Zena's uh, uh, Zena who, who've been doing environmental activism and people who've been uh, who do research on the ground and I think we need to be more engaging uh, uh, kind of more citizen citizen science where people themselves are involved in these projects. So so uh, it is a sad story and Iraq as a country that is, is so uh, incredible has an incredible re environmental resources and, and diversity. Uh, you know, it is really saddening to see what has happened to the rivers, what has happened to the environment. And it probably a lot of that explains why in Iraq we have a, a, an epidemic of cancer, an epidemic of these congenital anomalies, uh, uh, problems uh, that we don't necessarily see in other places. Uh, and I think Adding to that the psychological burden of war, the the physical, uh, uh, the magnitude of physical injury of three decades of war in the country uh, is something kind of pretty pretty dark and 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 uh, disturbing for the future. But that's but that's exactly where I think potential of transformation will be because I think people themselves are beginning to understand that that they they deserve better better than this. Thank you. Omar, thank you so much indeed. Um, we are coming to the end of our event tonight. We have a couple of questions left and rather neatly they are both for Eve, which I think will balance up the Q&A rather beautifully to finish. So we'll take these two and, and then wrap up. Uh, thank you so much to the audience for all their brilliant questions. Um, Eve, your first question is from Rhys Waldron. Um, it goes to the networks and initiatives you've identified relating to black identifying Arabs, Turks, Iranians. Those that you have identified, 
are these primar primarily based in countries in the region or are they elsewhere, for example, US, UK, Europe? And have you seen any efforts of initiatives to move beyond research to practice uh, programming and projects beyond these smaller pockets of interested parties to wider communities? I was so intrigued by listening to, to Omar and Zena, I forgot to unmute, sorry about that. Um, um, you know, I think one of the most interesting of the networks uh, began in Turkey, um, in Izmir actually, and then in Istanbul, um, which is the Afro-Turk movement that was um, begun by Mustafa Olpak, who wrote a really beautiful book um, about the history of his family in Turkish. And then this was translated to French. We're now waiting on the publication of the English translation, but what, and, and Mustafa Olpak unfortunately um, died um, um, two years ago, I believe. Um, anyway, but he was able to gather communities of, of, of Turks who identify themselves uh, as being of African descent um, through festivals and, 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 and now through his text. And people began to come not only from Turkey, but from other places, um, particularly a very interesting group of graduate students, not um, from Canada and from the United States. Um, um, so I think this is one very interesting um, network that, that did not come out of, 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 of um, Europe or the United States. Um, I am, the, the Sudanese networks are vast and those have come out of Khartoum, but also um, out of Juba um, and other places in the South. Um, and so um, the, these, the, these, some of them, um, began in Cairo, some of them began in London, some of them began, you know, um, um, <clears throat> many of the groups that I'm starting to learn about in Morocco and Tunisia in particular um, um, are are starting, those, many of them have started in France, some have started. So what I'm saying is that we're, it's, it's not something that's only happening, Reese, here in the United States or in the UK or in other parts of Western Europe. This is something that is really dependent on local-based networks. The scholars are running behind trying to catch up. And then was, in that, was that another question? Yes, Ayla Gaul has a, has a super question, I think, to, to top off the, the event. It's a fairly, it's not, it's not a small question. Eve, you mentioned the legacy of colonialism and slavery as part of regional issues. British and French had their moments in the Middle East. But do you think that the Ottomans and Americans had longer and deeper impacts? How do you see the future of identity politics shaping, still shaping in the study of the region and or leading to multiple identities, like the young scholars you mentioned as Afro-Turkish. Good luck. If a question can be gorgeous, that is a gorgeous question. <laughs> it really is a great question. Um, um, so, oh yeah, the British and the French had their moments. They were very long moments. Um, um, those moments are still going on. So, you know, um, but I love the part that you brought up about the Ottomans and um, because that is absolutely true. Ottoman ways of, of, 
of looking at hierarchies, you know, policies that came from those hierarchies were hugely important, hugely important throughout throughout the the Middle East. Maybe less so in Iran, um, but definitely a, a part of the Arabic-speaking world, a huge amount. I would say also we sometimes leave out another group that really is the forms the basis for so many understandings of race and those were the jaleba those were the slave raiders in sub-saharan african countries for instance in southern sudan in the in in the equatorial provinces as they were called by the british these were the people who were coming up with with these slave-based ethnographies of who could be enslaved by their belief systems by their languages and by their appearances those were often the racial ideas that translated not only north to Istanbul, but also across the Red Sea and also across the Indian Ocean. So absolutely. That, and then, yes, the, the American stamp on it um, um, is, is, is very long and very current. Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm finding debates over Black Lives Movement um, um, fascinating in the Middle East, but I cannot answer that question as fully as I'd like to, because I know our time is up, but I'm very grateful for the question. It's wonderful. Eve, thank you. Indeed, I, we, I wish we had a full, a full two days, which was indeed our initial plan when we, we first um, set up events to mark our 10th anniversary. Of course, those were to be in person. Um, sadly, we're restricted. But I'm so grateful to all three of you. It's been it's been fascinating. It's been rich. It's it's been thoughtful. It's been provocative. It's been illuminating. And I hope we can get you to LSE in person um, in the coming year or two at some point. It'd be wonderful to see you all and have you on site in London. Um, the sad thing about these events online is we now can't go out for dinner or or lunch, perhaps in your case. Um, <laughs> we're so grateful for for your generous time. Um, thank you very much to all three of you. I wish we could give you the full round of applause. Uh, you so richly deserve. So a virtual round of applause to you all. And a great thank you to our audience. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Oma. Thank you, Zena. Huge thank you to our audience for joining us um, this evening, UK time. Um, and this marks the end of the celebrations we've been running for our 10th anniversary. So again, a big thanks to everybody involved, uh, to all the hard workers and, and the support we've had. I would like to make a pitch as well to our uh, listeners who are listening in Arabic at the moment. Oh, and thank our interpreter, Saud, who's in Baghdad. Thank you so much for your work tonight on, on the interpretation. But um, our users of Arabic who are listening, please get in touch with us. Um, we are increasing our content in Arabic. We would like to do better, we'd like to do more. Um, and we'd love to hear from you as to your ideas as to how we can better serve um, Arabic speaking audiences um, from our base in London. So we. We hope to hear from you more follow up on the Arabic side as well. We now have a dedicated Arabic editor, uh, the wonderful Nisreen Arafai, who's working in the centre um, on our Arabic content. So that was a pitch for that. Um, everyone, thank you all again. Thank you to Nadine for organising the event. Um, wish you all a very good evening or afternoon or night in Baghdad. And uh, happy holidays when they come as well. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.